PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by TriWG. TriWG is a manufacturer of motorized rehabilitation equipment, specializing in bariatric rehabilitation equipment, including parallel bars and mat, treatment, and tilt tables with weight lifting capacities from 500 to 1,000 pounds. For more information, visit www.triwg.com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for February 2011. This month's research reports focus on passive mobilization of shoulder joints, comprehensive databases for physical therapy trials, whole body vibration and Parkinson disease, content of therapy in post-acute inpatient rehabilitation after spinal cord injury, hip strength in patients with total knee arthroplasty, full-text publication productivity in physical therapy, head shake sensory organization test, use of presenteeism scales in chronic work-related upper extremity disorders, and reproducibility of exercise testing in spina bifida. This month's technical report focuses on a sensor for monitoring activity in older people with impairments. The February issue also features an article in PTJ's new Profession Watch segment, the revised research agenda for physical therapy. This article is also the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Carolee Winstein. Join the discussion about the research agenda at PTJ's Facebook page. A link to PTJ's Facebook page is located on the right side of PTJ's homepage under Social Networking. First this month, does passive mobilization of shoulder region joints provide additional benefit over advice and exercise alone for people who have shoulder pain and minimal movement restriction? A randomized controlled trial by Ross Yasimides, Dr. Mark Halaki, Dr. Ian Kethers, and Dr. Karen Jin. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Passive mobilization of shoulder region joints, often in conjunction with other treatment modalities, is used for the treatment of people with shoulder pain and minimal movement restriction. However, there is only limited evidence supporting the efficacy of this treatment modality. The purpose of this study was to determine whether passive mobilization of shoulder region joints adds treatment benefit over exercise and advice alone for people with shoulder pain and minimal movement restriction. This was a randomized controlled clinical trial with short, medium, and longer-term follow-up that was conducted in a metropolitan teaching hospital. 98 patients with shoulder pain of local mechanical origin and minimal shoulder movement restriction were randomly allocated to either a control group or an experimental group. Participants in both groups received advice and exercises designed to restore neuromuscular control at the shoulder. In addition, participants in the experimental group received passive mobilization specifically applied to shoulder region joints. Outcome measurements of shoulder pain and functional impairment, self-rated change in symptoms, and painful shoulder range of motion were obtained at one, three, and six months after entry into the trial. All data were analyzed using the intention-to-treat principle 
by repeated measures analyses of covariance. No statistically significant differences were detected in any of the outcome measurements between the control and experimental groups at short, medium, or longer-term follow-up. This study had the following limitation. Therapists and participants were not blinded to the treatment allocation. This randomized controlled clinical trial does not provide evidence that the addition of passive mobilization applied to shoulder region joints to exercise and advice is more effective than exercise and advice alone in the treatment of people with shoulder pain and minimal movement restriction. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Ross Yasimides is in the discipline of physiotherapy, Sydney Medical School, at the University of Sydney, in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Next, Central, Pedro, PubMed, and Embase are the most comprehensive databases indexing randomized controlled trials of physical therapy interventions. By Zoe Michalev, Dr. Leonardo Costa, Dr. Anne Mosley, Dr. Christopher Marr, Dr. Mark Elkins, Dr. Robert Herbert, and Dr. Catherine Sherrington. Many bibliographic databases index research studies evaluating the effects of healthcare interventions. One study has concluded that the Physiotherapy Evidence Database, or PEDRO, has the most complete indexing of reports of randomized controlled trials of physical therapy interventions. But the design of that study may have exaggerated estimates of the completeness of indexing by PEDRO. The purpose of this audit of bibliographic databases was to compare the completeness of indexing of reports of randomized controlled trials of physical therapy interventions by eight bibliographic databases. Pre-specified criteria were used to identify 400 reports of randomized controlled trials from the reference lists of systematic reviews published in 2008 that evaluated physical therapy interventions. Eight databases, AMED, Central, Sunal, Embase, Hooked on Evidence, Pedro, PsycInfo, and PubMed were searched for each trial report. The proportion of the 400 trial reports indexed by each database was calculated. The proportions of the 400 trial reports indexed by the databases were as follows. Central, 95%. Pedro, 92%. PubMed, 89%. Embase, 88%. Sunal, 53%. AMED, 50%. Hooked on Evidence, 45% and PsycInfo 6%. 99% of the trial reports were found in at least one database, and 88% were indexed by four or more databases. Four trial reports were uniquely indexed by a single database only, two in Central, and one each in Pedro and PubMed. This study had the following limitation. The results are only applicable to searching for English-language published reports of randomized control trials evaluating physical therapy interventions. The four most comprehensive databases of trial reports evaluating physical therapy interventions were Central, Pedro, PubMed, and Embase. Clinicians seeking quick answers to clinical questions could search any of these databases knowing that all are reasonably comprehensive. Pedro, unlike the other three most complete databases, is specific to physical therapy, so studies not relevant to physical therapy are less likely to be retrieved. Researchers could use Central, 
Pedro, PubMed, and Embase in combination to conduct exhaustive searches for randomized trials in physical therapy. An e-appendix accompanies this article online. Lead author Zoe Michalev is a Ph.D. candidate at the George Institute for Global Health at University of Sydney in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Next, Effects of Whole Body Vibration on Sensory Motor Performance in People with Parkinson Disease, a Systematic Review, by Ricky Lau, Tilda Teo, Felix Yu, Dr. Raymond Chung, and Dr. Marco Pang. Earlier studies show that whole body vibration has beneficial effects on neuromuscular performance in older adults and may be a viable treatment option for people with Parkinson's disease. This systematic review was aimed at determining whether whole body vibration improves sensory motor performance in people with Parkinson's disease. The sources used in this review were Medline, Sinal, Embase, the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, and the Physiotherapy Evidence Database, or PEDRO. The sources were last searched in April 2010. Randomized and non-randomized controlled studies examining the effects of whole body vibration in people with Parkinson's disease were selected. Six studies fulfilled the selection criteria and were included in this review. The PEDRO score was used to evaluate methodological quality, the effects of whole-body vibration on various sensory motor outcomes were noted. Methodological quality was rated as good for one study, which had a PEDRO score of 6, fair for four studies, which had PEDRO scores of 4 or 5, and poor for one study, which had a PEDRO score of 2. Two studies showed that, compared with no intervention, Whole-body vibration treatment led to significant reductions in tremor and rigidity, as measured with the Unified Parkinson Disease Rating Scale. The findings for other Unified Parkinson Disease Rating Scale cluster scores were conflicting, however. Two studies showed that longer-term whole-body vibration, that is, three to five weeks, did not result in better sensory motor outcomes than conventional exercise training. The studies reviewed here are limited by their methodological weaknesses and small heterogeneous samples. There is insufficient evidence to prove or refute the effectiveness of whole body vibration in enhancing sensory motor performance in people with Parkinson's disease, that is, grade D recommendations. More good quality trials are needed to establish the clinical efficacy of whole body vibration in improving sensory motor function in people with Parkinson's disease. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Ricky Lau is a student in the Ph.D. program in the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University in Hong Kong. Next, comparing content of therapy for people with a spinal cord injury in post-acute inpatient rehabilitation in Australia, Norway, and the Netherlands. By Dr. Sacha von Longefeld, Dr. Marcel Post, Dr. Floris von Osbeck, Mel Gregory, Dr. Annette Halverson, Henny Raken, Jacqueline Leinders, Karen Postma, and Dr. Elena Lindemann.
Research reports have described the contents of therapy in spinal cord injury rehabilitation only as the total number of therapy hours. The authors developed the Spinal Cord Injury Interventions Classification System as a tool to classify therapy to improve mobility and self-care into three levels, body functions, basic activities, and complex activities, and 25 categories. The purposes of this prospective descriptive study were 1. To compare specific contents and amount of therapy provided with the aim of improving mobility and self-care for people with spinal cord injury in Australia, Norway, and the Netherlands. And 2. To evaluate the use of the Spinal Cord Injury Interventions Classification System outside the Netherlands. Physical therapists, occupational therapists, and sports therapists in six centers recorded all therapy provided to all people with a recent spinal cord injury in inpatient rehabilitation during four designated weeks. Each treatment session was classified using one or more codes from the Spinal Cord Injury Interventions Classification System. Duration of each intervention was specified. 73 therapists recorded 2,526 treatments of 79 people with spinal cord injury. An overall mean of 84% of therapy time was spent on exercises and on categories at body function and basic activity levels of the Spinal Cord Injury Interventions Classification System. Therapy time significantly differed among countries for 13 of 25 categories. Mean time in minutes per treatment and in hours per patient per week differed significantly. This study had the following limitations. The short period and small number of patients may have influenced the results. Therapy in inpatient spinal cord injury rehabilitation in all three countries focused on mobility and self-care exercises at body function and basic activity levels, but differences were present in focus on the various categories and therapy time. The Spinal Cord Injury Interventions Classification System can be used reliably to describe therapy in different countries. Lead author Dr. Sacha von Langefeld is postdoctoral researcher at the Rehabilitation Center de Hochstraat and at the Rudolf Magnus Institute of Neuroscience, University Medical Center Utrecht, both in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Next, contribution of hip abductor strength to physical function in patients with total knee arthroplasty by Dr. Sarah Piva, Paolo Teixeira, Gustavo Almeida, Dr. Alexandra Gill, Dr. Anthony DeJoya III, Timothy Levison, and Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald. Investigating modifiable factors that contribute to functional limitations in patients with total knee arthroplasty may guide changes in rehabilitation protocols and improve functional outcomes. Whereas quadriceps muscle weakness has been demonstrated to contribute to functional limitations in total knee arthroplasty, the role of hip abductor weakness has not received attention. The purpose of this study was to determine whether hip abductor strength contributes to physical function beyond what can be explained by quadriceps muscle strength in patients after a total knee arthroplasty. A cross-sectional design was used in the study, which was conducted in a clinical laboratory at an academic center. 31 people with total knee arthroplasty participated in the study. Strength of quadriceps muscles and hip abductors was measured using an isokinetic dynamometer. 
performance-based physical function was assessed with four measures. Self-selected walking speed, the figure of eight walk test, the stair ascend-descend test, and the five chair rise test. Self-reported physical function was assessed with the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index Physical Function Subscale. In hierarchical regression models, after accounting for demographic and anthropometric factors, quadriceps muscle strength was associated with performance on the stair ascend-descend test. After accounting for demographic and anthropometric factors and quadriceps strength, hip abductor strength was associated with performance on the stair ascend-descend test, the figure of eight walk test, and the five chair rise test. The study had the following limitation. The study design precluded ascertainment of causal relationships. After total knee arthroplasty, hip abductor strength influenced physical function in participants more than did demographic or anthropometric measures or quadriceps strength. Longitudinal studies with larger samples are warranted. If findings are replicated, they will justify targeting the hip abductors during rehabilitation after total knee arthroplasty. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Sarah Piva is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Next, full-text publication of abstract-presented work in physical therapy. Do therapists publish what they preach? By Dr. Heather Smith, Dr. Elizabeth Bogenschutz, Dr. Amy Bayless, Dr. Peter Altenberger, and Dr. Stuart Warden. Professional meetings, such as APTA's Combined Sections Meeting, CSM, provide forums for sharing information relevant to physical therapy. An indicator of whether therapists fully disseminate their work is the number of full-text, peer-reviewed publications that result. The purposes of this study were, one, to determine the full-text publication rate of work presented in abstract form at CSM, and two, to investigate factors influencing this rate. A systematic search was undertaken to locate full-text publications of work presented in abstract form within the orthopedic and sports physical therapy sections at CSM between 2000 and 2004. Eligible publications were published within five years following abstract presentation. The following influences on full-text publication rates were assessed. APTA section, year of abstract presentation, Institution of origin, study design, sample size, study significance, reporting of a funding source, and presentation type. Characteristics of full-text publications were explored. Work presented in one out of four abstracts progressed to full-text publication. Odds of full-text publication increased if the abstract originated from a doctorate-granting or other institution, reported findings of an experimental study, reported a statistically significant finding, included a larger sample size, disclosed a funding source, or was presented as a platform presentation. More than one-third of full-text publications were published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy or Physical Therapy, and four out of ten full-text publications contained at least one major change 
from information presented in abstract form. The full text publication rate for information presented in abstract form within the orthopedic and sports physical therapy sections at CSM is low relative to comparative disciplines. Caution should be exercised when translating information presented at CSM into practice. This article is the subject of a discussion podcast with author Dr. Stuart Warden, Dr. Guy Simoneau, and Dr. Rebecca Craik, moderated by Dr. Christopher Marr. Lead author Dr. Heather Smith is Research Associate in the Department of Physical Therapy at the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, Indiana University, and is Physical Therapist at the Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana, both in Indianapolis, Indiana. Next, Balance Performance in Head Shake Computerized Dynamic Posturography, Aging Effects, and Test-Retest Reliability by Dr. Marco Pang, Freddie Lam, Gary Wong, Ivy Au, and Dorothy Chow. The ability of the sensory organization test to detect subtle balance problems has been challenged. The Head Shake Sensory Organization Test has been developed to improve the delineation of balance performance. The purposes of this study were, one, to examine age-related differences in balance measured with the Head Shake Sensory Organization Test, and two, to establish the test-retest reliability of the Head Shake Sensory Organization Test in younger adults who were healthy and older adults who were healthy. A test-retest design was used in this observational measurement study. 92 younger adults who were healthy and 73 older adults who were healthy underwent the sensory organization test and the head shake sensory organization test. 77 of them underwent the same assessments one to two weeks later. The equilibrium scores in the head shake sensory organization test condition two that is, head movements with eyes closed while standing on a firm surface, and condition 5, that is, head movements with eyes closed while standing on a sway-referenced surface, were significantly lower than those in sensory organization test conditions 2 and 5, that is, tests without added dynamic head movements. Older adults attained significantly lower scores in both head shake sensory organization test conditions than their younger peers. This study had the following limitation. Only head rotation movements on the horizontal plane were tested. Adding head movements to the sensory organization test increased the separation of younger adults who were healthy and older adults who were healthy. The head shake sensory organization test has good reliability, and the reported minimal detectable change values may facilitate the interpretation of clinical studies in which the head shake sensory organization test is used to assess changes in balance performance in younger and older adults. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Marco Pang is Associate Professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University in Kowloon, Hong Kong. Next, validity and responsiveness of presenteeism scales in chronic work-related upper extremity disorders by Dr. Jean-Sebastien Roy, 
Dr. Joy McDermid, Dr. Benjamin Amick III, Dr. Harry Shannon, Dr. Robert McMurtry, Dr. James Roth, Dr. Ruby Graywall, Kenneth Tang, and Dr. Dorcas Beaton. The Work Limitations Questionnaire 25 and the Work Instability Scale for Rheumatoid Arthritis have been used to measure at-work disability related to musculoskeletal disorders. However, a recent systematic review has shown that important psychometric properties still needed to be evaluated. The purpose of this study was to establish the validity and responsiveness of the Work Limitations Questionnaire 25 and Work Instability Scale for Rheumatoid Arthritis in people with chronic work-related upper extremity disorders. 206 participants with chronic upper extremity disorders who attended a specialty clinic operated by the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board of Ontario were evaluated at their initial visit and six months later. Questionnaires completed at each evaluation were the Work Limitations Questionnaire 25, the Work Instability Scale for Rheumatoid Arthritis, the Quick Dash, the Pain Subscale of the Shoulder Pain and Disability Questionnaire, and the Chronic Pain Grade Questionnaire. At the six-month evaluation, participants completed a Global Rating of Change question. Known Group and Construct Convergent Validity were assessed using analysis of variance and Pearson correlations, and standardized response means were used to assess responsiveness. Clinically important differences also were determined. The Work Limitations Questionnaire 25 and Work Instability Scale for Rheumatoid Arthritis had low to moderate correlations with pain and disability scales and discriminated among different functional categories. For improved participants, the Work Limitations Questionnaire 25 and the Work Instability Scale for Rheumatoid Arthritis demonstrated moderate responsiveness. The clinically important difference for improvement was estimated to be 13 out of 100 points for the Work Limitations Questionnaire 25 summed score, 5 out of 28.6 points for the Work Limitations Questionnaire 25 index score, and 4 out of 23 points for the Work Instability Scale for Rheumatoid Arthritis. The study had the following limitation. The external criterion of change was specific to change in upper extremity condition and not to change in workability or productivity. The Work Limitations Questionnaire 25 and Work Instability Scale for Rheumatoid Arthritis provide different information from that provided by pain and disability measures. They discriminate among functional outcome subgroups and detect improvement over time in people with chronic work-related upper extremity disorders. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is accompanied by two e-figures and two e-tables online. Lead author Dr. Jean-Sebastien Roy is Assistant Professor in the Department of Rehabilitation, Faculty of Medicine at Laval University and is Scientist at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Rehabilitation and Social Integration, both in Quebec City, Quebec, Canada. Next, reproducibility of maximal and submaximal exercise testing in normal ambulatory and community ambulatory children and adolescents with spina bifida. Which is best for the evaluation and application of exercise training? Bianca de Grote, Dr. Tim Tocken, Dr. Rob Goskins, Dr. Maria Schoenmakers, Manon Vubbles, 
Dr. Luke Von Hayes, and Dr. Paul Helders. With the emerging interest in exercise and lifestyle interventions for children and adolescents with spina bifida, there is a need for appropriate measurements in exercise testing. The purpose of this reproducibility study was to assess both reliability and agreement of maximal and submaximal exercise measures in normal ambulatory and community ambulatory children and adolescents with spina bifida. Twenty-three children and adolescents with spina bifida, ten who were normal ambulatory and thirteen who were community ambulatory, participated in the study. Maximal exercise outcomes were measured using a graded treadmill test. Peak measures, peak oxygen uptake, peak heart rate, heart rate response, and oxygen pulse were recorded. For submaximal measures, heart rate at the ventilatory threshold, oxygen uptake at the ventilatory threshold, and oxygen uptake efficiency slope were derived from the maximal measures. Functional performance was measured as the six-minute walking distance and the maximal speed during the treadmill test. After checking for normality and heteroscedasticity, paired t-tests, intraclass correlation coefficients, and the smallest detectable difference, or the coefficient of variation, were calculated. Performance measures showed good reliability and agreement. For maximal measures, acceptable intraclass correlation coefficients were found for all measures. For submaximal measures, only heart rate at the ventilatory threshold showed an intraclass correlation coefficient of less than 0.80. Agreement showed a coefficient of variation of less than 10% for all measures, except for oxygen uptake at the ventilatory threshold, heart rate response, and oxygen uptake efficiency slope. Limitations of the study include missing data due to equipment failure. Furthermore, the outcomes were limited to normal ambulatory and community ambulatory children and adolescents with spina bifida. Both maximal and submaximal measures of exercise testing can be used for discriminative purposes in ambulatory children and adolescents with spina bifida. For evaluative purposes, heart rate measures are superior to oxygen uptake measures, while taking into account the individual variation of 5% to 8%. The smallest detectable difference was 0.5 kilometers per hour for peak speed and 36 meters for six-minute walking distance. Heart rate response, oxygen pulse, and oxygen uptake efficiency slope are not recommended in the evaluation of exercise testing in this population. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Yonka de Groot is researcher at the research group Lifestyle and Health in the University of Applied Sciences, and in the Department of Pediatric Physical Therapy and Exercise Physiology, Child Development and Exercise Center at Wilhelmina Children's Hospital, University Medical Center Utrecht, both in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Last, we have a technical report. Evaluation of a body-worn sensor system to measure physical activity in older people with impaired function. By Christine Taraldsen, Dr. Torun Askim, Dr. Olaf Sletvold, Alin Einarsson, Kariana Gruner-Bjastad, Dr. Bent Indradovic, and Dr. Joran Helbostad. There is limited information on reliable and valid measures of physical activity in older people with impaired function. 
This study was conducted to compare the accuracy of single-axis accelerometers in recognizing postures and transitions and step counting with the accuracy of video recordings in 14 people with stroke, 14 older inpatients, 8 people with hip fracture, and a reference group of 10 adults who were healthy. This was a cross-sectional study evaluating the concurrent validity of small, body-worn accelerometers against video observations as the criterion measure. Activity data were collected from three active PAL sensors attached to the thighs and the sternum and from registration of the same activities from video recordings. Participants performed a test protocol of in-bed, transfer, and walking activities. The sensor system was highly accurate in classifying lying, sitting, and standing positions and in recognizing transitions from lying to sitting positions and from sitting to standing positions. Placement of a sensor on the non-affected leg resulted in less underestimation of step counts than placement on the affected leg. Still, the sensor system underestimated step counts during walking, especially at slow walking speeds. This study had the following limitation. The study was performed in a controlled setting and not during the natural performance of activities. The ActivePAL sensor system provides valid measures of postures and transitions in older people with impaired walking ability. Step counting needs to be improved for the sensor system to be acceptable for this population, especially at slow walking speeds. Lead author Christine Taraldsen is a PhD student in the Department of Neuroscience, Faculty of Medicine at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology and in the Department of Geriatrics at St. Olav's Hospital at the Trondheim University Hospital, both in Trondheim, Norway. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.